All right, if you'll stand with me as your Bible probably automatically opens up to the book of Genesis at this point. We're going to be in chapter 9, reading verses 18 through 29. If you're using a pew Bible in front of you, you can find this passage on page 5. Again, we're going to read Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 29. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Let's pray. Father, as we look into your word this morning, uh, Lord, we just ask that as you reveal and bring to light, uh, Lord, the sins of the saints, and God, you uh, expose the ugliness of what life can be. God, may we be reminded of the gloriousness of your grace. We may, maybe we reminded of the sacrifice of your son, God, and uh, the power that uh, you've given to us uh, through him. Lord, may all the riches... Um, that we have through him, Lord, just be enough for us. God, may we lean on that in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I have to admit up front, this is one of the more bizarre stories in all of Scripture, what Kurt just read for us. When you think of Noah, you think of this guy who had this remarkable faith. Great faith, building a boat simply because God told him to. But not just any boat, but an ark big enough to hold his family and a whole lot of animals during the flood. And so when you think of Noah, you think of this great hero of the faith who obeyed God and then he walked with God. And we should think of Noah in that regard. But then we come to this story. We come to Genesis chapter 9 here at the end of it and we read the rest of Noah's story. And it's a very strange story indeed. Here's this great hero of the faith, and he drinks a little too much wine. He gets drunk, he gets naked, and he winds up passed out on the floor of his tent. And when Noah wakes up, he curses his grandson and blesses his two other sons. And perhaps you're thinking about now why is this story even in the Bible? This story is so strange, it seems out of place. This is one of those stories we read, but we're not quite sure what to do with it. And so we kind of just go on to the next story. We gloss over it because we're like, what does this mean? What, why is it here? I don't understand it. But this bizarre story is in the Bible for a reason. When God writes a story, he knows everything about everyone. And he always tells the truth. 
He tells the good, the bad, and the ugly. In fact, notice this in your notes. You're welcome to pull that insert out in your bulletin or just kind of follow along on the screen behind me. But the Bible never tries to hide the sins of the saints. One author long time ago said this, It is human to err, but it is also human to conceal the blemishes of those we admire. But God never does that. God never tries to hide the sins of the saints. And so when you read about the heroes of the faith, you see the good, the bad, and the ugly of their life. In fact, one of the evidences of the authenticity of the Bible, and this is why I love God's Word, is that it includes the defeats and the defects of God's people, as well as the vices, I mean the virtues and the victories. And so when we find in the Bible a strange story of sin like this one. It's a reminder to us that God's Word is true. We can count on it. God's not trying to just paint a picture here that is all roses. No. In fact, the Apostle Paul even says in 2 Peter 1, 2 Peter 1 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories. And that's the truth of the Word of God here before us. And so what we have is the rest of Noah's story. And as strange as it seems, it reveals three truths about myself and you. It reveals three truths about all of us here this morning. And so what I want us to do is kind of take a few minutes and unpack what these three truths are. And the first truth that we find is the sin that we all have. The sin that we all have. The Bible bears witness to the fact that Noah was this remarkable man of faith. We've already covered Noah's life through the flood, and we've seen this. And because of his faith in God, Genesis... Chapter 6, verse 9 tells us, Moses writes these words about Noah, that he was this righteous man. He was blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. Now, what a way to be described. Oh, that we all would be described in such a way. The writer of Hebrews also describes Noah as this man of faith, a man of righteousness. The apostle Peter even called Noah a preacher of righteousness. And when God told Noah to build the ark, which we saw took 120 years. Moses tells us in Genesis 6, that Noah did all that God commanded him. And then after the flood, when he stepped off the ark onto dry ground, the first thing Noah does is he builds his altar to the Lord. He offers these sacrifices to God, signifying his complete and utter surrender to God. Here's my life, Lord. And then God commanded Noah and his family. Listen, Go and multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over it. And that's exactly what we see Noah doing here in Genesis 9 in verses 18 and 19. Look at it again. It says, then, now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And so there's no doubt that Noah was this remarkable man of faith who did great things for God. But he was still just a man. And as a man, he still sinned. Noah had inherited 
a sin nature from Adam, just as those before the flood. This is the sin we all have. Paul tells us in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people. Why? Because all sin. We all have inherited the sin nature. The flood did not get rid of sin. Sin survived the flood, which was alive and well in both Noah and, as we will see, in his sons. And so sin had weathered the storm. It had come out without a scratch, and it did a number on Noah and especially his son, Ham. At this point, the rest of the story moves from these beautiful rainbows that we saw last Sunday to this dark shadow. Everything seems to be going just fine when we read here in verses 20 and 21. Look at it. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. And then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. Now evidently, Noah was a man of the soil, and he became the world's first great winemaker. And like any good winemaker, Noah took good care of his vineyard as it would take years for his vineyard to produce grapes and for the wine to ferment. Now, while the Bible always condemns drunkenness, it doesn't necessarily always condemn drinking of wine. In fact, in the Old Testament society, wine was actually considered a blessing from God and was even used in the sacrifices. And while this is the first mention of wine in Scripture, we know it's not the first time people drank wine. You go to, the, to uh, Matthew there, and Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 24, 38, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and they were drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Now I say all that to say this. Noah was far from naive about the power of wine. On the contrary, he knew what too much wine would do to him. But in his old age, Noah let his guard down. He drank too much and found himself not only drunk, but laying naked in his tent. Here's Noah, if you might imagine this, a great hero of the faith. And he's passed out naked in a drunken stupor on the floor because his drinking had gone out of control. A hero of the faith falls. Noah's sin was basically twofold here. Notice this in your notes. Noah's sin was drunkenness, and the effect of that sin was then nakedness. But Noah's drunkenness and nakedness were sinful, and the one often leads to the other. Inappropriate nakedness and drunkenness is an offense to God. It's condemned in the Bible. For example, God said in Habakkuk 2, 15 in verses 14 and 15, it says, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that they can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. And so when no Moses says Noah became uncovered, that phrase is rather interesting because it emphasizes that Noah himself, he uncovered himself, and it means to be disgracefully exposed. In other words, here's the scene, here's the context. Noah was so utterly drunk that he stripped himself naked and he passed out. And having uncovered himself, 
he therefore had covered himself with shame and disgrace. Let me tell you, sin was alive and well in the new world after the flood. As one commentator says, the flood did not purge the earth of the wickedness, and we cannot suppose that such was its purpose. Indeed, if God had wanted to eradicate evil in the world, he would have had to eradicate whom? All of humanity, including Noah. But this God would not do. Why? Because remember back in Genesis chapter 3, God promised that the offspring of Eve would one day crush the very head of Satan. Nevertheless, the dominance of sin in Noah's life is rather astounding. Noah was the one righteous man on the face of the earth. But sin, at that moment, got the best of him. It conquered him. Noah is the new Adam, but he still has the same heart of Adam, just as we all do. In fact, another commentator put it this way, this helpless drunk, fallen unconscious in his tent, is as significant a warning to us as the flood itself. Noah could not make it on his own. He was terribly flawed. He needed help from beyond himself. He needed God's grace. And that is the truth for all of us. We cannot make it in this world as Christ followers apart from the grace of God. In fact, Noah's sin here shows us that even the most godliest of people are still prone to sin. Now let that just sink in for a moment. Because if Noah can sin, then anyone can sin. But the point of the story is not merely that anyone can sin, but rather that everyone does sin. And if you're here this morning, and you're sitting there, and you're thinking to yourself, man, how could Noah, how could he do such a thing? Get drunk and got naked. How could he do that? And if you're thinking that, then you don't know your own heart. And to you, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 10, verse 12, so if you think you are standing firm, then be careful that you don't fall. Why? Because past godliness, past obedience, does not guarantee future obedience. You don't build up this immunity towards sin. Age is not a protection against temptation. This is why each of us as Christ followers, we must continually walk with God, walk in dependence on the Lord daily in our lives. But Noah's sin also teaches us something else, that we're often most vulnerable when the pressure is off. There's a natural tendency to ease up when the conflicts lessen. In other words, when Noah was surrounded by wickedness before the flood, he lived how? He lived righteously, it says. But when the storm was over, the flood had passed, he comes off the ark, and he and his family were the only ones on the face of the earth. Noah let his guard down, and he fell into sin. Another author made this observation. Noah is not the only man who has walked uprightly and kept his garment unspotted from the world so long as the eye of man was on him but who has lain uncovered on his own tent floor in shame. Listen, Noah's fall here, it stands as a witness to the very first truth 
about all of us here today. And that is we all have sin. This hero of the faith was a flawed man, a sinner in need of God's grace. And of course, that brings us to the second truth. And the second truth is right here. And that is the shame that we all feel. The shame we all feel. And because we are made in the image of God, we all feel shame as a result of our sin. Now, it is true. You can sin so much and become so callous towards sin that you lose a sense of shame over time. That is a reality as well. But in the beginning especially, when we sin, the result always leaves us feeling ashamed. Now, it's not a sin, again, to drink wine or to sleep naked. And that's all I'm going to say about that one. But it is a sin to get drunk, and getting drunk almost always leads to more sin. And in Noah's case, listen, his drunkenness led to his nakedness. And having uncovered himself, again, he covered himself with shame. Now, Moses is doing something here for us. And if you remember, Moses is the author of the book of Genesis. And Moses is taking us back. He's drawing our attention back to Adam and Eve at this point in the story. If you remember, when God brought Adam and Eve together in marriage, God says, it tells us in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, that Adam and Eve were both naked and they were not what? Not ashamed. Why? Because there was no sin in their marriage. Listen, their marriage was holy, their marriage was righteous, their marriage was good, and it was a gift from God. But then Adam and Eve sinned. And as a result of that sin, what did they feel? Shame. In fact, they felt so much shame that they sewed fig leaves together in an effort to cover the shame of their nakedness. And they even tried to hide from God in the garden because they were naked and now afraid. Of course, their efforts to cover their shame were futile. Fig leaves don't last very long. And so in an act of grace, God covered the shame of their nakedness with animal skins. Noah's sin reminds us that when we sin, it leaves us feeling ashamed. Now, it would be easy here to think that Noah's sin was a secret. After all, it took place where? In his tent. And it was private. No one was around at that time. But secret sins rarely stay secret. Sure, you can hide your sin for a while. In fact, you may even, be, you may even hide your sin for a long time. But sooner or later, hidden sins get uncovered. Noah's sin was not an isolated event. In fact, the heart of this story deals with the response of Noah's sons to his sin. Think of it this way. Sin always impacts others. And it especially impacts those closest to you. When we sin, it has a ripple effect. It's like throwing a rock into a pond. And when you throw that rock into a pond, you see the ripples go outward. And of course, the bigger the rock, the bigger the ripples. And that's the way sin is. It impacts people around us. It's never an isolated event. Notice this. 
in Genesis chapter 9, look at 22 and 23. It says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. And then he told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, we need to understand the historical and cultural setting of this passage, really in order to appreciate the two different responses of Noah's sons to his shame. Because here's the deal. In our modern culture today, we read this passage, and here's what most of us here think to ourselves. What's the big deal? We see this, we read this, and we're like, what's the big deal? Noah had a little too much to drink. Noah got drunk, he got naked, and Ham saw his dad's nakedness. Big deal. And that's our typical response to something like this. Unfortunately, in our culture today, we have been so desensitized to nakedness it is so common in marketing and in the media that it's now the accepted norm. In fact, we are now part of a society, even Christ followers, that there is no sense of shame to nakedness. We've lost it. But in the Old Testament culture, seeing another person's nakedness, especially your father's nakedness, was a major offense. One commentator said this, to be exposed meant to be unprotected. And when I say, he, when he says exposed, your, your body, your nakedness exposed. To see someone uncovered was to bring dishonor and to gain advantage for potential exploitation. So look at the responses of Noah's two sons here. First of all, the response of Ham. Notice how he responded. He dishonored his father. He dishonored his father. And you say, how? By looking at his nakedness and then exposing his father's shame to his brothers. It says in verse 22, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, on the surface, that seems so innocent. Until you understand how offensive Ham's actions were. When Moses says that Ham saw his father's nakedness, it was not some accidental look. Like when a child innocently opens the bathroom door and just accidentally sees you taking a shower. And you're like, get out of here. That's not what this is. This was not a harmless glance by Ham. It was an intentional gaze. In fact, this verb, saw, it means that Ham gazed on his father's nakedness with satisfaction. In fact, some commentators go, far, so, go so far as to think that Ham actually took advantage of his father in some sexually perverted act. Now, the text does not seem to indicate that. It doesn't say that explicitly. Maybe that did happen. Maybe that didn't happen. What is true is that sexual brokenness will be a very significant part of the lives of the children of Canaan, which was Ham's youngest son. In fact, God's wrath, his judgment, will fall on the Canaanites because of the various ways they have rejected God's design for sexuality. 
Remember, too, that Ham was not some little boy wandering into his father's bedroom. By this time in the story, Ham is a grown man. In fact, probably somewhere around 100 years old. And he, as a grown man, he took delight in the spectacle of his father sprawled out naked in his tent. But that's not all. He took pleasure in exposing his father's shame when he told his two other brothers. In fact, this word told, it means to boldly announce with delight. In other words, here's the image. Ham gloated over his father's shame. Ham's heart was intent on mocking his father and undermining his authority as a man of God. You might even picture him flippantly telling his brothers, hey, you want to see something funny, guys? Our dad is passed out drunk and naked in his tent. Go look. Ham's actions here showed complete disrespect for his father. It was utter disobedience of the fifth commandment that Moses would later give, honor your father and mother. Ham did absolutely nothing to preserve his father's dignity. He did nothing to cover his father's shame. Instead, Ham further uncovered his father's nakedness, and he further exposed his father's shame. He even had the garment in his hands that was supposed to be covering his dad. That's the response of Ham. How did the other two brothers respond? Look at this, Shem and Japheth. They preserved the honor of their father by covering his nakedness without looking. Thankfully, Noah had two righteous sons. Notice again their response in verse 23. It says, but Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. And so in contrast to Ham, Shem and Japheth immediately take the garment from their brother and use it to cover their father's nakedness. And Moses, at this point in the story, he takes great care to show that these two brothers did not see their father's nakedness. Moses specifically tells us their actions, keeping their backs turned to Noah. They spread the garment across their shoulders and walk backward into the tent and laid the garment over their fathers and then walked out without looking. Thus they covered the shame of their father and in doing so, they preserved the honor of their father. Now, don't miss something important here. Don't miss the spiritual implications of Shem and Japheth. Because their actions are imitating who? God, when he covered Adam and Eve's shame. This doesn't mean, please understand this, this doesn't mean they covered up their father's sin. This doesn't mean the two sons ignored their father's sins, brushed it under the rug, didn't phased them at all, didn't impact them at all. They didn't cover up the sin just as God did not cover up Adam and Eve's sin. Listen, God dealt with Adam and Eve's sin. 
We know that. In fact, God dealt with it so much that he promised that Jesus would come to pay the penalty for sin with his death on the cross. And so them covering up here does not mean they covered up the sin, but they did cover up their father's shame. And as believers who have had our own sins covered by the blood of Jesus, we should respond with grace and truth when other believers fall into sin. Grace and truth. In fact, Paul tells us in Galatians 6.1, and when, in this verse here, you can almost picture the actions of Shem and Japheth here. It says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Listen, how we respond to sin in other people says an awful lot about us. And so let's stop and ask ourselves a question. Are we more like Ham, or are we more like Shem and Japheth? How do we respond when a Christ follower falls into sin? Is it with delight? Is it with a sense of superiority? I would never do that. Or are we ready to spread it to others, to gossip about it? Like Ham, do we further expose someone's shame that they're already feeling as a result of their sin? Or like Shem and Japheth, do we seek to cover their shame with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we seeking their restoration or their condemnation? Listen, church, listen to me. Let us, let us be a church, let us be a community of Christ followers that are like Shem and Japheth, who cover people's shame while also pointing them to the only person who can cover their sin, and that is Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the third truth, and that is the Savior we all need. Now, we've come to the fallout from sin, but not so much from Noah's sin. In fact, it's interesting, Moses doesn't even really tell us anything about how God dealt with Noah's sin here. Rather, he focuses on the fallout from Ham's sin. Notice what it says in verses 24 through 27 here. So Noah awoke from his wine, and he knew what his younger son had done to him. You say, well, how did he know? More than likely, probably one of his brothers told him, or one of his brothers, one of his sons. And then Noah said, Cursed be Canaan, servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Now, what's interesting, this is actually the only recorded words of Noah in all the scripture, right here. And it's a prophecy that begins with a curse on Canaan, his youngest grandson, and ends with a blessing on Shem and Japheth. Now, Noah's cursing and blessing were really a prediction, a prophecy of things to come regarding the future of the human race. And such curses and blessings had no power in and of themselves unless the Lord fulfilled them. So do not think that Noah's cursing and blessing here had some voodoo power in his words and magic. It didn't. It was God who had the power to bring about and to fulfill the prophecy or the prediction that Noah is making in his cursing and his blessing. So look at it here. We'll break it down. The cursing. 
Canaan and his descendants would live in servitude because they would follow in the sin of Ham. Now, you're probably wondering at this point, well, who in the world is Canaan? Well, three times already this in this passage we are told that Canaan is the son of Ham. And what's interesting is that Canaan is the one cursed. If you're reading the story, who would you curse? The son of Ham or Ham? Ham, but that's not what happens here. Canaan's curse is that his descendants will be servants of servants. That is, they would live in servitude to those around them, becoming servants of servants. Canaan and his descendants would be cursed, not just because of Ham's sin, and here's what you need to understand, but because of their own sin as well. And you may be wondering, why did Noah curse his grandson Canaan instead of Ham? Well, the Bible doesn't fully tell us, doesn't fully answer that question. It's possible that Canaan was somehow involved in Ham's sin of disrespect, either toward his grandfather Noah or perhaps toward his father Ham. It's also possible that Noah had continually seen in his grandson Canaan the evil traits, the evil attitude and actions that he was continually seeing in his own son Ham. The key to understanding this prophetic curse is to remember that Canaan was the father of the Canaanites, the depraved nemesis of the people of God, the Israelites. Now, don't miss the connection here. Let me make, connect the dots for you. Follow along. Ham was the father of Canaan. Canaan was the father of the Canaanites. And the Canaanites, this vast people group, were sexually perverted idol worshipers. And their origin all comes from Ham. Everything the Canaanites did was symbolized by the perverted actions and attitudes of their great-great-father, Ham. In fact, you go to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 18, and it describes the vile, degenerate practices of the Canaanites with this litany of euphemisms to represent their deeds using the word nakedness 24 different times to describe the Canaanites. No wonder God told the Israelites when they entered the promised land to drive out who? The Canaanites. Now, when viewed with this perspective, big picture perspective, God's perspective, Noah's prophetic curse makes perfect sense. Noah saw something. He saw in Ham's act of disrespect an arrogant attitude towards sexual morality that was shared by his son Canaan, which produced this vast harvest of evil in a whole people group, the Canaanites. And to that, God says, let them be servant of servants. This was God's judgment on their sin, which their father Ham exemplified. But there comes a blessing as well as a cursing. And notice the blessing here. And that is Shem and his descendants would enjoy God's favor because of their relationship with the Lord. 
Specifically, Shem would be served by Canaan, and this blessing would also extend to his brother Japheth. But what's significant is that the Lord, the God of Shem, is the one that's blessed first, suggesting that Shem was already in a covenant relationship with the Lord and that this blessing was found holy in the Lord. Now, this special relationship with God is indeed to be in a right relationship with God, your creator. That is the ultimate and greatest blessing anyone can share in. And Noah's wish here that Japheth would dwell in the tents of Shem involves the sharing of this great blessing. Now, here's the question. Obviously, this took place a whole long time ago. So how do we here today, how do you get to participate in this? How does all this cursing and blessing apply to us today? Here's the deal. Hopefully, hopefully, after reading the rest of Noah's story, you are left longing in your heart for deliverance from your sin. Sin was not drowned in the flood. Sin came out of the ark with eight people. And it's the sin we all have. And it leads to the shame that we all feel. And so we hopefully now, we are sitting here and we are left with this desperate longing for God to do something in our hearts. And the good news is, God not only can create a new world like he did for Noah and his family, but he can create new hearts, redeemed hearts, who share in Shem's blessing through the Savior that we all need. In fact, God is saying that the Savior we all need will actually come through, get this, the line of Shem, the Israelites, through whom the entire human race can now be blessed. Japheth's line will not lead to the Savior, but there is a blessing in store for his descendants. In fact, the Gentiles are the descendants of Japheth. And by the way, if you are not Jewish here this morning, that means you are a Gentile descent. God is saying as early as Genesis chapter 9 here that salvation would come through a Semite, Jesus Christ. And then this abundance of Gentiles would come to salvation through the Savior we all need. And so today the gospel, get this, it knows no boundaries. No boundaries. The blessing of salvation goes to all peoples across all the world, everywhere. This is the ultimate blessing anyone can share in, and that is to have your sins forgiven, to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen, if you are blessed, if your sins have been covered in Jesus Christ, that is the ultimate blessing that you can share in. There is no greater blessing. And so this story makes it clear that we desperately need something here. We have a huge need in our lives. We need a greater salvation than what the ark could provide Noah. Because sin lies where? In the human heart. Our nakedness, our sin, cannot be covered by anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can cleanse the human heart. Only Jesus can cover our sin. 
And get this. Jesus did this once and for all by shedding his blood on the cross. He is the ultimate covering for our sin. He is the Savior we all need. He is, in the words of John, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But the flood could not do. Jesus did. Have your sins been washed by the blood of Christ? Have you experienced his grace and his truth in the gospel of Jesus Christ? If not, then let me encourage you in a few moments when we bow our heads and we have our response time, then to cry out to the Lord in repentance and faith and ask him to forgive you and save you. Ask him to cover with his shed blood that he already paid on the cross to cover you and let his righteousness overwhelm you. And may all of us here, by the grace of God, may we leave here saying with King David in Psalm 32, 1, Blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is what? Covered, it says. You may be wondering, well, what happened to Noah? What happened to Noah? Well, Moses doesn't leave us guessing. He tells us in the last two verses of the chapter here, and just like his family before the flood, Moses tells us in verses 28 and 29, it says, And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. That's Noah's obituary. And like all obituaries, they have a lesson for us. This may sound a little morbid, but I love to conduct funerals. Much more than weddings. At a funeral, oftentimes, a family will ask me to read the obituary. And when you read the obituary, there's always a lesson in it. And the reason I, I say the word enjoy, but I put it in quotes, enjoy doing funerals, is because you literally have a captive audience. People are grieving over the consequence of sin, the ultimate consequence, and that is death. Their minds are already there. They're on it, and they want hope. They're looking for hope. And as a pastor, I get the opportunity to present the ultimate hope in Jesus Christ. That is the answer to death. And so, like all obituaries, Noah's obituary has a lesson for us. And notice the lesson. It says, after the flood, death still reigns because of sin. That was true before the flood. It is still true after the flood. But grace still prevails in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, right? Amen to that. Listen, the rest of Noah's story shows us three truths about all of us here this morning. We all have sin. We all have shame. But the question is, do we have the Savior who deals with our sin and our shame. Romans 5, 20 and 21 says, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigneth in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And again, I ask you the question, ponder it. 
You have sin and you have shame as a result of your sin. But do you have the Savior, Jesus Christ, to cover your sin and deal with your shame? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning. And we thank you, all how we thank you for the grace of your truth revealed to us here in your word. And we ask now that you would help us to embrace by faith the only one who can save us from our sins. Help us to cling to nothing, to no one but Jesus Christ. For he alone is the Savior we all need to cover the sin we all have. We ask this in his name. Amen. Zach's going to sing a chorus. And as he does, this is your opportunity to respond to the grace and truth of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Run to him, if you have not already, for the forgiveness and gift of eternal life. Perhaps you're a Christ follower here already, but there is unconfessed sin in your heart. Listen, run to him again. God is faithful to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness if we will come to him in repentance.